take your Bibles with me uh, one more time this summer and open them again to the Psalms this week, Psalm 88. Just by way of announcement, as you make your way to Psalm 88, uh, this being the the, uh, last in the series uh, in the Psalms this year, we will uh, next Sunday morning uh, share together in a time of corporate prayer in worship uh, through singing and also through guided prayer and, uh, and, and uh, leadership in praying from God's Word. We do this at least a couple times each year on a Sunday morning, and uh, this has been on the calendar for us. And uh, praying together as a congregation is uh, exceedingly helpful and necessary. There are lots of calls from God's Word for His people to pray together. And uh, it's not enough to uh, just say that we want to pray together. We've got to do it and put it on our calendar. And so next Sunday morning, we're going to pray together as a church in our time of worship. And we'll conclude that time of worship with uh, the Lord's Supper. And so we'll share together uh, in the bread and the cup, reminding ourselves of uh, the price that Christ paid for our sins, also of his resurrection and his coming again to call the church to himself. So those of you who are members at First West, uh, make next Sunday morning a priority for you and for your family to worship together with the church. Today we look at Psalm 88 in this uh, series called Psalms for Every Season. Psalm 88 is a psalm for seasons of darkness, depression, grief, distress in the life of the people and the person of God. This psalm, Psalm 88, is in large part why I wanted to spend several weeks in the psalms this summer. Uh, two, I think it was two years ago, 2019, maybe 2018, we spent several weeks in the summer looking at different kinds of psalms. And one of the kinds of psalms, categories of psalms that we have are lament psalms. And Psalm 88 is a lament psalm. And the lament psalms are uh, interesting because within them is a lot of uh, grief, uh, a tone of darkness and desperation and seeking help from God. But all the lament psalms usually end on a on kind of an upward swing with a hopeful tone, with confidence in the person and salvation of God, but not Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is unique, and it is uniquely difficult to read because it doesn't end on a hopeful upswing. In fact, the last word of Psalm 88 is darkness. It's a word that kind of controls the tone of the entire psalm. It's a hard psalm to read, but in so many ways it speaks straight to the state of many of our hearts. It's important for us to know this psalm and to know that it is in God's Word and to know how to interact with it, how to pray along with it, how to grieve with it as well as we follow Christ together. The overarching theme of this psalm, the main idea of Psalm 88 is that in times of deepest desperation and darkness, we must keep crying out to the God who saves. That's the call, that's the charge of Psalm 88. In times of deepest desperation and darkness, keep crying out to the God who saves. This morning we must know that God invites, in light of what Psalm 88 shows us, and just its existence in Scripture, that God invites our deepest groaning, that He can handle our sharpest pains, and that He hears our every cry. So friend, in times of deepest desperation and darkness, keep crying out to the God who saves. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word? Psalm 88. Our 
a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Mahalath Leonoth. That's the tune, very likely, that the psalm was written to. A mascal of Haman, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I cry, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a tough psalm, right? It's difficult as Psalm and dark as Psalm 88 is. There's much that we can learn from it and even be encouraged by in it. First of all, there are several things that just the existence of this psalm in Scripture shows us and demonstrates to us. First of all, the existence of this psalm validates seasons of darkness in the human life. Darkness, the final word in this psalm, is the, is the word that characterizes the tone of the whole thing. There's not much light in this psalm. Someone said, Amen. Truthfully, every lament psalm is kind of like this, kind of dark. And every lament psalm validates dark and difficult, even uh, seasons of suffering in the life of God's people. And there are lots of laments throughout the psalms, and it's helpful that they are there for us. But this psalm is different because it's the only one of all the laments that doesn't end with a hopeful tone and hopeful expectation of God's deliverance, of God's work in the life of the psalmist. Friend, you may find yourself in just such a season of darkness, depression, despair today. The existence of this psalm validates those seasons of darkness. This psalm says to you, friend, in the middle of grief and sorrow, you are not the only one. You are not crazy. Suffering is real. It is good to have in God's word a validation that sometimes, often, regularly, maybe frequently, life is dark. The existence of the psalm validates that. It also, the existence of the psalm also acknowledges unresolved suffering. In the psalm, there's no deliverance. 
on the part of the psalmist. He's not delivered from his illness, from having one foot in the grave, so to speak. He's not delivered from the wrath of God that is upon him, the terrors of God that have swept over him. He doesn't, at the end of the psalm, have a whole bunch of friends again. This is a prayer that comes in the middle of a psalmist's lifetime of suffering and pain and rejection. He says that even from my youth up, I have been this way. Not only is no no light at the end of the tunnel of this psalm or in this psalmist's life, at least from his perspective, there wasn't a whole lot of light at the beginning of it either. It's all dark. It's all hard. It's all frustrating and sad. Often as Christians who know that Christ, our risen Savior, presently reigns over all things and that He'll one day return to make all things new and bring with Him a new heavens and a new earth in which the redeemed of the Lord will live forevermore. As Christians, knowing all of those wonderful truths and having all that awesome hope and and confident expectation of the gospel, we are too quick to say to those in deep depression, it's going to be okay. Don't you know it's going to be all right? All you need is five minutes at the bedside of someone who is dying with their family surrounding them to know that those words quickly become empty ones. The truth is, in this life, things might not be okay. Things may may not end up with a happy ending. We don't live in a Disney movie. Thank God. In reality, sickness often leads to death. Depression may never totally leave you. You may find yourself in a situation like those in Afghanistan where militant religious radicals have overrun your nation, never to be restored to order again. There may be some challenges that no matter how hard you pray, how much faith you have, how positively you think about things uh, will, will go, that none of it will ever end up neatly tied with a pretty little ribbon. Much suffering is not resolved in this life. Psalm 88 acknowledges that. God, in this psalm, points us to the reality, reminds us of the reality that not everything gets cleaned up in this life. But this psalm doesn't leave us there, of course, with the prospect of unresolved suffering. It goes further. And the existence of this psalm also, and finally here, teaches us to pray through darkness. It teaches us that there are words that we can express, that there is a God that we can go to in seasons of darkness and unresolved suffering. What I love about this psalm, and I hope that you'll come to love it too, is the way that the psalmist begins his prayer. Verse 1, O Lord. There he's using the personal name of God. Uh, there, L-O-R-D, all in caps. That's the, the, the personal name of God, Yahweh, revealed from God to Moses in the burning bush, the God who is, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. The psalmist's life is dark and depressing and sad. But before the psalmist ever pours out in detail all of the pain of his life, he cries to Yahweh, the God who is, who's the God of my salvation, he says. Certainly the suffering is not gone by the end of the psalm. But the Lord remains the God of salvation. His character never changes. The way that the psalmist relates to him does not change. 
The psalmist pours out all of his grief, all of his sorrow, all of the darkness of his heart, and yet the God that he cries to has not changed or shifted or turned. We can pray to God through seasons of darkness, particularly because we can have confidence that the God of our salvation hears our prayer. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. There's other, many other situations and seasons of darkness among God's people throughout Scripture. One stands out to me in particular, and that is of the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who found themselves slaves in a foreign land in Egypt for several generations. We know that they ended up in Egypt because Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, Joseph had ended up sold by his brothers into slavery. He was later taken into Egypt where there he he rose to second in command over all of the kingdom and was able to, by the help of God and provision of God, store up in times and years of abundance food for years of famine that would follow. And he brought all of his family, his brothers, his father, into Egypt to eat off the fat of the land in those in, in the, the famine years that followed. And the people, the Hebrews, the people of Israel, stayed in Egypt for some time, growing and multiplying, until one day Pharaoh looked out and saw that this growing group of people suddenly potentially posed a, a real political threat to him. If they ever decide to side with our enemies and fight against us, we're in trouble. So here's what we'll do. We'll just enslave them. And for generations, the people of Israel, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, forced into labor to build cities for Pharaoh without adequate supplies, were at the hand of harsh taskmasters with their whips. We read at the end of Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Not that they hadn't been crying out for years, decades even before, They cried out continually. Their cry for rescue, Moses tells us, their rescue from slavery came up to God. And hear this, God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That last phrase, and God knew, doesn't mean that God simply knew the facts of their suffering. Yep, my people are there, they're suffering. Those are the facts. No, that idea of knowledge, that God knew what was going on, is an idea of relational knowledge. He understands by by means of his relationship with his people the pain and the suffering that they are in. Like a father sitting at the bedside of his child who's going through chemotherapy in the hospital knows the suffering of his child. So God knew the suffering of his people in Egypt, a dark, depressing, distressing situation. And when the people cry out to God, he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. This psalm, Psalm 88, teaches us to pray through darkness. If the psalmist comes away with nothing else from this prayer, he can know that the Lord, the God who is, hears his people. That God sees their suffering, that he remembers his covenant, and that he knows relationally, intimately, all that is going on. And even if it is not resolved in this life, he's still the God of salvation, whose character never changes. The existence of this psalm 
validates seasons of darkness. It acknowledges unresolved suffering and it teaches us to pray, to go to God, the God of salvation, with all of our hurts and all of our pains in times of serious darkness. But what do the words of this psalm do for us? Well, first of all, the words of this psalm, I think, echo in the human heart with uncanny clarity. How many of you, as we read this psalm, Psalm 88, caught a verse here or a phrase there and said, yeah, that's me. Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt and the scars to prove it. What one of us has not known someone or some season of life that felt like this, that had this Psalm 88 kind of tone to it, where we are like one with, with one foot in the grave, abandoned by many, separated and feeling as though the Lord is far from us. Who of us, who among us has not in some way, in some sense, lived a portion of Psalm 88? I'm going to take a risk this morning and be transparent with you. This is August. I've been trying to keep track. For about the last 10 months, much of my life in different ways has felt like Psalm 88. For about 10 months now, I've been in a prolonged season of spiritual dryness, emotional fatigue, uh, physical lethargy. Now, don't let your imagination run away with you. I'm, uh, I'm not suicidal or asking for pity or anything like that. But in reality, the last 10 months have been a hard 10 months for me. And some of that's related to COVID and all just all the garbage that goes along with that, added stress in your life, Lots of kids in the house and walking through adoption process and trying to figure out how to lead a church in the middle of a pandemic like so many other pastors. Last 10 months have just been hard. And a lot of us have seasons of life where things are going well. Maybe for a couple weeks we'll dip into a little bit of a depression and come back out of it and we're okay again. But this dip has been about 10 months long for me. And my guess is a lot of you feel the same way. And maybe even worse. Some of you are in deeper, darker valleys than I've been in the last 10 months right now. Some of you have lost dear loved ones, spouses of multiple decades, beloved church members, brothers and sisters, partners in the gospel with you. Some of you have been desperately and deathly ill in the last year. Some of you have had family abandon you and abandon the faith. And you're left with all of these hard questions. God, where are you in times like this? The words of this psalm permit us, they give us permission to admit that we are suffering. And to admit all the details of our suffering. There is a lie from the pit of hell that says, Christians are those that have their lives all together and they're always happy and everything works out. Psalm 88 defies that lie. It says, no, sometimes, often, life is dark. And here we have in God's word, words that ring with clarity in the hearts of readers, demonstrating that God, he really does know what we are going through. These words of this psalm permit us to admit that we are suffering and to admit all the details of our suffering, but they also serve, and here's the hard part, to remind us of God's sovereignty. 
God's sovereignty. It's a, it's a word that, that means God is in, in charge of all things. There's nothing outside of his control, outside of his allowance. Nothing takes place outside of his will that he does not uh, intend or, or, or allow to or ordain to take place. Psalm 88 reminds us of God's sovereignty in hard ways. I, I have to admit, verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 88 are, are I think, the hardest part of this psalm. Because in these verses, the psalmist attributes every single bit of his pain and his sorrow and his suffering to who? To God. Verse 6 says that the Lord placed him near to the pit, near to the grave. Verse 7 says that it is the wrath of the Lord that weighs on the psalmist and the waves of God's judgment that pass over him. Verse 8 attributes the psalmist's rejection by his closest companions and friends to the Lord's doing. God, you have made me a terror in their eyes. You have led me to isolation, desperation, depression. Verse 9 notes, though, that in the midst of all this terrible darkness, that it is still God to whom the psalmist cries every day with a posture of supplication and seeking of help. You put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies on me. You overwhelm me. You cause my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. Some shut in and my eye grows dim. Every day I call to you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, I, O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Surely, some may say, a loving God would not do such things as these to his people or allow them to go through such pain. God will never give you more than you can handle. Bull honky. Tell that to the psalmist in Psalm 88. Can you imagine some knucklehead going to the psalmist and he's in the, in the middle of all this suffering saying, hey, listen, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a recipe for getting your face punched. But that sentiment that God will never give you more than you can, you can handle, God will never do, you know, loving God would never do things like this to his people, that sentiment, we have to admit, friends, is exceedingly narrow and temporal. It only sees life from our perspective. It assumes that nothing good can ever come from suffering or pain and that God is somehow evil if he allows pain to come upon his people or to discipline his children. It would be helpful here if the psalmist gave some reason for why the Lord is doing this to him. At least tell us, dear psalmist, why this is happening. Is God disciplining some disobedience in your life? Is he punishing some wickedness or sin in your heart? Is he even bringing pain upon you for the purpose of sanctification? If the psalmist knew of it, any of this would would help us to, to explain why God is doing what he's doing to the psalmist in this time of his life. It would help us to make sense of God's purposes in, in, the, in this. But as it is written, Psalm 88 offers us no explanation of God's motives. More specific than it is his will to do this. Now, this is not to say that the Lord never has purposes in allowing or even causing pain. Friends, often he does. But here we do not have them. We don't get that tidy explanation in Psalm 88. In many ways, this psalm would fit very, very well in the narrative of Job's life where God's motives are similarly unexplained. God gives permission to Satan, to the accuser, 
to take everything from Job. A man always faithful, never disobedient to the Lord. God says to Satan, sure, take everything. He won't curse me. And Satan goes and he does. He takes Job's health and his wealth. He takes his family. And then Job's idiot friends show up and start giving him advice. And then at the end of it, God shows up and he comes to talk to Job. And what is God's answer to Job for all of the suffering he has brought and allowed in Job's life? His answer to Job is another question. Who do you think you are to question my motives? In all of this, Christian, we must remember, even as we read hard things in Psalm 88, and even as we admit that sometimes God allows, even causes, suffering and pain in the lives of his people for reasons that we may not ever know in this life, that for us to read Psalm 88 or or other places of Scripture like Job and, and attribute evil to God, to say that what God is doing to me is evil, is sinful, that that is a grievous misstep. And it's an assumption that we as sinful creatures somehow are better at discerning the justness of God's motives than he is. The truth of this psalm is that sometimes God does things without explaining himself to us for the purpose of working his sovereign will in us. But listen, God, our creator, does not need the permission or approval of his creatures to do so. He's sovereign. He rules. He reigns over all of it. He can do what he wants with it. And we know because we know his character from so many other places of Scripture that even if it feels horrible, it is for good and God-glorifying purposes. This psalm reminds us of God's sovereignty in hard ways, but ways that we need to come to grips with and wrestle with and, and try to, in as much as we can, bring our hearts to be at peace with. This is a difficult reality that's presented to us in this psalm, but as difficult as the reality of God's sovereignty is in seasons of deepest and unanswered darkness, the words of this psalm also allow us to ask that sovereign God hard questions. We not only get permission to admit all of our frailties, all of our failings, all of our suffering in this psalm, we also have permission to ask God the hardest questions. Verses 10 through 14 are all presented as as an inquisition of sorts, an inquiry in the middle of prayer to God. These are difficult questions. Look at them. Do you work wonders for the dead? The psalmist wants to know. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? These are hard questions to ask God in a time of suffering. These are difficult questions. These are questions that are strenuously seeking the person and the truth of who God is and what he does. The psalmist is really asking whether these things can be so. Is there a positive answer or response to any of these questions? And the way that these questions are asked, uh, there is a, a longing present in each of them for a real answer from the Lord. Now, there are several questions that are asked in verses 10 through 14. I see them categorized into essentially two. I think we can ask two questions that summarize what the psalmist is after. First of all, the questions in verses 10 through 12 are sort of summarized in the first question that's asked. Do you work miracles for the dead? That is to say, 
For me, who has one foot in the grave, about to die, God, is there any hope in you or your power for me or for those that have also died? Do you do wonders for the dead? The biblical answer, dear friends, is what? Yes, absolutely he does. We see all throughout the testimony of God's word, God working wonders for the dead. 1 Kings 17, we see Elijah, that great prophet of God, raising a widow's son from the dead. In 2 Kings chapter 4, by the power of God, Elisha, Elijah's sort of protege prophet uh, friend, he also raises a woman's son from the dead. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, even after he's been in the grave for three days. And as one of his disciples said, Lord, he stinketh. Not only does God work miracles for the dead in raising them, uh, 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 resuscitating them from the dead, but also he works wonders through his own son, God in flesh, by raising Jesus from the dead. All four Gospels testify to this. The Apostle Paul affirms it and confirms it for the church in 1 Corinthians 15, saying that if Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, we among all people are the most to be pitied, but in fact he has been raised. So we have hope, we have joy, we have confident expectation that we too will be raised. We know from what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that sinners are raised from spiritual death to life by God's grace. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the uh, pattern of this world, the prince of the power of the air. But as, he, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. And we know that those who trust in Jesus, the one who died for their sins on the cross and was raised from the dead in victory over sin and the grave, that those who trust in Jesus and call on him as Lord will also be raised with him on the last day. Do you work miracles for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Absolutely. Hard question number two comes to us in verse 14. It's essentially this. Why, God, do you turn from me? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you ignored me? Why don't you answer my cries? Where have you gone? Many of us are tempted to ask questions like this in times of extended darkness and difficulty and depression. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? The answer to this question that we often ask God in times of deepest darkness, and this psalmist does as well, is that for those who trust the Lord, he never forsakes them. He's never far from them. He's never turned away from them. We know from Exodus 19, verse 5, that God has called his people, their Israel, but later also the church, to be his possession forever. You are mine for always, he says to his people. It's a promise of God that is repeated in Deuteronomy 7, 14, 26, Psalm 135, Malachi 3, and a promise that is applied to the church in Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 14. We have the promise of God to Joshua from Joshua 1, verse 5, when God says to him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That same verse is is quoted again as a promise for the church in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And as we know from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, there is nothing in all creation in heaven or on earth that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Even Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, I am with you always. 
even to the end of the age. And the good shepherd Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 that those that the Father has given to him, no one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. So in the middle of deepest darkness and pain, when we are led to cry out, why do you turn from me, God? Why have you forsaken me? Even when God gives us permission in in his scriptures to ask this question, his answer to us is always and abundantly, I do not. I do not leave you. I do not forsake you. I've been here all the time. You are mine forever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No one will snatch you out of my hand. There is nothing, no nothing, not even this season of deepest depression in your life, of, wor- of most grave sickness, not even this, this season of hopelessness can cause anything to separate you from my love to you in Christ Jesus. Remember that. These questions aim at two central truths that are apparent to us all throughout Scripture. That Yahweh, the God who is, is in the business of bringing life to dead souls and dead bodies. And that Yahweh, the God who is, never gives up on those who belong to Him. It is, of course, though, no wonder that these two truths are questioned in this time of darkness and depression. Because if God is absent or if God has been deceitful about who he is and what he does, then there is no hope for the psalmist or for us. If the answer, do you work wonders for the dead, is no, then there's no hope. If the response to, why do you cast my soul away, why do you hide your face from me, is, I don't know, just felt like it. There's no expectation of the reliability of God's character. But we see in verse 13, as in verse 1 and verse 9, that though all of this heavy situation has come upon the psalmist to the degree that he questions these most fundamental truths about God, it is still the God of his salvation, confidently stated by the psalmist that the psalmist is turning to, crying to, seeking for help. Though the answers to these several questions, do you work wonders for the dead? Why have you gone away from me? Do you really leave me in these places? The answer to these questions may may feel or seem negative. They are, despite the heart's feelings, abundantly and confidently positive in the course of Scripture. Though you may be lying on your deathbed or sitting next to your dying child and asking God, do you work wonders for the dead with no hope of healing in this life? you can know that the answer, even though it feels like no, even though it feels like God has turned away, that biblically and finally and ultimately, the answer is yes. God does work wonders for the dead. And he's in the business precisely of doing this. The words of this psalm allow us to ask God hard questions. But we finally need to come to understand and realize that the words of this psalm ultimately are God's words. These are God's words. As with all scripture, Psalm 88 is breathed out by God and written down through the pen of a human author under God's spirit-driven supervision. This psalm is not just the psalmists. It doesn't just belong to Haman the Ezraite. It's ultimately God's psalm. It's his song. He has spoken these things. He has given us this prayer to pray and these hard questions to ask of him in the moment of our secret groaning. What a comfort. What a comfort 
to know that God instructs his children to bring all of their junk and all of their darkness to him because, as his song reminds us, he is the God of salvation who is sovereign over all of it. Who can handle your darkest darkness, your deepest depression, your most threatening illness, other than the Lord, the God of your salvation? Who else is there in heaven or on earth to cry out to for real help? Who else works wonders for the dead? Who else will never leave nor forsake us? Who else is worthy of our groaning in our time of our deepest darkness than Yahweh, the God who is the Lord of our salvation? Friends, these words in Psalm 88, the darkest psalm in all the Psalter, are God's words given as a gift to us to pray. But consider also how particularly well God's words in this psalm fit into the voice of Jesus from the cross where he hung and died for the sins of the world. Think of all the suffering, all the weight of sin, all the wrath of God poured out on him there at the cross. Do not these words fit that precisely? But not just the groaning, not just the suffering, not just the pain that Christ endured on the cross, but also this psalm points to God's sovereign purpose and plan in all of it. God's doing, God's handiwork at the cross. Even as unjust as the cross appears to human eyes, a sinless son of God dying for the sins of many, It appears unjust to human eyes. We know from Scripture that it was God's eternal plan to put Christ, His Son, God in flesh, to death for sins. The Apostle Peter reminds us of this twice in Acts. Acts chapter 2 and Acts 4.28. This was God's plan to put His Son to death. To pour out all of His wrath on His Son for undeserving sinners. This psalm not, not only fits into the mouth of Jesus on the cross where there he was he was literally shunned by his companions where he was a horror to those who were around him where he was shut in so that he could not escape where he had was put by God into the depths of the grave regions dark and deep the wrath of the Lord lying heavy upon him on and on not only all of the suffering of the psalm fits exceptionally well into the mouth of Jesus but also all of God's sovereignty in this psalm fits well the whole situation of Jesus dying on the cross for us and it's not just Psalm 88 and Acts that point us there also Isaiah the prophet does so in Isaiah chapter 53 many of you Christians You know Isaiah 53. It's the song of the suffering servant. That prophecy of a a servant of God who would come to give his life for the people. But all throughout Isaiah 53 are pointings, are markers, are declarations of God's sovereign plan. His intention to cause his servant to suffer. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity, the guilt of us all. Who put it there? God put it there. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush his service, his servant. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. 
And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The gospel teaches us that it is only by and through Jesus' vicarious, that is his substitutionary, his death in our place. And at the same time, unseemly and apparently unjust suffering that many are healed, many are saved, many are restored. That's the only way for us to be reconciled to God is if one suffers who was sinless, suffers in our place for our sins. That's precisely what we have in Jesus at the cross. One who embodies all of the suffering and pain of the sin of the world in Psalm 88 and who proclaims the sovereign will of God and his working for good and glory in the middle of it. Those who know Christ as Lord, those who follow him as Savior, those whose dead souls have been brought to life by faith in him through God's grace and suffer, and friends, we will. The suffering of the Christian does not bring about our own salvation. And it doesn't bring about the salvation of others. None of us can do for ourselves or for other people what only Jesus can do for us. But our suffering does, often and always, as intended by God, lead to sanctification and greater conformity to the image and character of Christ. Peter the Apostle images this beautifully in 1 Peter 1, who speaks about our suffering in this life as temporary and as Gold placed in the fires of a crucible for its purification. Dear church, seasons of darkness and desperation are real. Do not believe the lie that becoming or being a Christian resolves all suffering. Instead, in the middle of unresolved suffering, in the middle of seemingly unending depression, in the middle of abiding emotional darkness, dear friend, look to Christ, who is our great high priest, who can sympathize with our every weakness. He who suffered, as Psalm 88 describes suffering according to the will of God, so that he might bring many sons to glory, knows your every weakness and can sympathize with your every season of darkness. Trust him who suffered unimaginable pain and sorrow and death in your place and lift your eyes to see him risen from the grave in victory and with confidence cry out to God, to the only God of salvation. And friend, even when answers don't seem to come, keep crying out to him because he hears your groaning. Our Lord is mindful of his promise to redeem us through his son. Friend, he sees you and he knows. So bring him your questions. Open your hands to bring him all of your fears and cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Just keep crying to him. Let's pray together.